like them Cowboys did last Sunday. I think the Cowboys were the only team of all the NFL teams last week that did not score a touchdown. For what that's worth. Yeah. Right like that, Brian? <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, well, today is, well, it's our last day of our summer series because this Thursday is the first day of fall. So today we bring everything together. We've had a summer series going on for several weeks, almost 11, 12 weeks. But today is the finale. So the text to be reviewed today, inner finale of gleanings from Genesis, our summer series, is Genesis chapter 45. So before we do the reading, we got to do a little bit of review, and not really review so much as where we've been, but a little catching up on what's happened from the last time we were together last week in chapter 41 to today in chapter 45. Because if you were here last week, you may remember that we introduced Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the highest governing official, the ruler in the land of Egypt, and he had two dreams, one involving cows, the other involving uh, grain. It happened to be that the grain that was withered or the cows that were skinny and weak ate the ones that were larger. And the dream troubled Pharaoh. So they summoned Joseph, who happened to be in prison at that particular time. They got him cleaned up, got him shaved, and brought him to Pharaoh. And they began to interpret the dream. Now Joseph quickly gave all the credit to God for interpreting the dream. But he told Pharaoh the dreams revealed that a famine was forthcoming. However, the famine, before it would arrive, would be having seven years of plenty of abundance of a harvest of crops to get them through all seven years of the famine. So, they, so Joseph then actually forecasted and seen what was in front of him for 14 years, seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. Pharaoh then impressed with Joseph's interpretation and actually Joseph even giving some advice, promoted Joseph then to second highest official in all the land of Egypt. Only Pharaoh himself is higher than Joseph. So subsequently then in chapters 42 and 44, which we're not getting to, the dream then is realized. There is indeed a great plenty, a great abundance of harvest of grain. So much so that Joseph has to instruct others to build storage bins. With the completion of the grain harvest, just as predicted, the famine hits. And it hits really hard. It hits so hard. The famine is so widespread. It is so bad. that the only place to find any grain, any food, is in the land of Egypt. Which means that in Canaan, where Jacob, who is Joseph's father, and also his brothers remain, there is no grain to be found. So then Jacob then reluctantly has to send his sons into the land of Egypt to buy some grain from Joseph. But when the brothers come to Egypt to, to purchase the grain, they have absolutely no idea they're buying the grain from their brother because they do not recognize him. But why would they recognize Joseph as a brother? I mean, the entire family thinks that Joseph is dead, which, by the way, is exactly what they had wanted with Joseph. Remember, they hated Joseph. They despised him greatly because of his dreams and because of his coat he had from his father, Jacob. He, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. But as the brothers then 
come to Egypt to buy the grain. And while they don't recognize Joseph, Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers. But he delays in revealing his identity. Why delay in revealing his identity to his brothers he hadn't seen in 13 years? Because he is unsure if they have really changed. Remember, they wanted him to be dead. So he tests them to be sure. That happens in chapters 42 and 44. So while then he's testing them, eventually he comes convinced that they have truly changed. He reveals then to him that the, he is indeed Joseph, their brother, which is kind of where we pick up the story in chapter 45. Stand with me this morning, but do to look at the eight verses in chapter 45 that we read today. It's not long, it's not a lengthy text, but one that we'll, we'll learn from and also apply. Genesis chapter 45 and verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself. They came to Egypt. He, brothers are standing in front of him. He could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Well, Father, we, Lord, thank you today for this reading of this word. And Lord, we thank you for how we can have a series that we have learned from so much this particular summer. Lord, to bring things to a finale today, we pray, Lord, you continue to direct us and anoint this time together to let us receive a final word of what you have for us for our summer series. Direct us again today, Lord, and just lead us in to what you want us to glean from this particular message upon this day. We thank you for what shall happen here today, what we shall learn, and what we shall apply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, notice as we go back to begin the chapter 45 here, verses 1 and 2, that Joseph could not withstand his emotions. I mean, he lost control. He, he cried out. He wept. I mean, as previously mentioned, he had tested. We didn't get to get to that part of the particular story of Joseph, but he had tested his brothers to see if they had genuinely, sincerely changed. And then once he had been convinced that they had changed, he then readies himself to let them know that he is Joseph, their brother. But notice in the midst of doing that, he is overcome with emotion and weeps. The people wonder why Joseph would be so emotional at this particular moment. Some even suggest it shows his weakness. However, I would disagree. I mean, Joseph is not weak in my mind, in my estimation. 
being emotional and weeping to me is not a sign of weakness, but more of the fact that Joseph in this foreign land has had times of sorrow, times of hardship we know about, and he's actually had times of loneliness. I mean, consider that he hasn't seen any of his family. He has seen his brothers, his father, in over 13 years. Yeah, I mean, they hated him. But when you go through all the trials and tribulations and adversity that we have seen with Joseph, we've been through all that, you need family. Because family can help comfort the soul. Now, fortunately for us here at Crossroads, we are family. We are family, and we are so blessed because we get a chance to come and pray for one another and encourage each other with difficult moments. And we've had so many difficult moments in the three-plus years I've been here. I mean, we, we've had a situation with Nick, of course, with Ray's passing and with the boys. And so many have stepped up and actually helped the situation. I, I, I don't know where Nick actually would be or Jackson and Declan and Tucker without having a church family we have here because we've all rallied together and helped them through many different situations. We had the Team Goldie shirts, if you remember, in which we supported them even through the adoption that Nick had with the boys. There's been Nora, who most recently has been battling cancer for well over a year. I mean, yes, we get a praise together where she shared the good news, but, you know, it's a situation where she wasn't sure how things were going to go for her. I mean, she had to actually quit chemotherapy one time because it was affecting her body so, so harshly. Radiation was hurting her. We had the faith over fear shirts. We rallied together to help Nora. For Tom, who's still in the hospital, we talked about the cards and the letters to give him some words of encouragement that Penny's wanting to do for Tom to help him through some frustrating days. We had Team Culp shirts made to help him and, and to support him. Bill has been in the hospital for numerous times, and, and, and we prayed with Bill and tried to help him. Brian's going to have surgery tomorrow. Chris had a situation where he wasn't sure about his future. We prayed together for Chris, and he got cleared up. I mean, so, one, so a lot of things have happened here. And we prayed together, we've been together, and helped each other through it. But that's what a family is supposed to do. We make sacrifices for each other. We help each other when life gets hard. And we're blessed to have a great church family. Especially when it's rare today to have such a church family that we have here. And having a family like ours can help you through the worst of days. In Joseph's case, I mean, yeah, he had a new family. I mean, when he became second to all the land with, with Pharaoh, Pharaoh, if you remember, gave him an Egyptian wife. His name, Her name is Asenath. And, and Asenath and Joseph now have had two children, Manasseh and Ephraim. So, I mean, he has some people around him, but he hasn't seen his blood. We're tied together by the blood of Christ. He hasn't seen his blood brothers, his father, in over 13 years. So understandably now, as he gets all of them in front of him, he gets a little bit emotional. But maybe even further, as one commentary led us into a thought we're about to share, maybe the entire testing period that he had with his brothers really began to wear on him. I mean... Possibly thinking that as he began to test his brothers, that, his, that they were still envious and, and despised him. So maybe that really began to wear on him in that thought process. And, and maybe that's why he's also a little bit emotional. The commentary actually stated, 
Joseph's delay in revealing who he is to his brothers must have taxed his patience. He had been apart from them for many years because of the cow's rejection of him. It would have been understandable if he had confronted them harshly and rebuked them, but he did not. He was, like God, gracious and merciful. He attested them and seen that, instead of abandoning Benjamin, which was the younger brother, they had defended him. Clearly, his brothers have become wiser over the years of separation. Joseph has now set the stage for a dramatic revelation of his incredible secret. He will identify himself and prove to be savior of the brothers who treated him so badly. But that CBS commentary there actually is very helpful and maybe understanding the perspective that the situation that Joseph is in and maybe explains part of his emotions. But also notice that the commentary sets us up for the next segment of this remarkable story. The fact that he, Joseph, it will not only reveal who he is, but will tell his brothers that God meant it for good. As in a savior for his family and everyone else affected by the severity of the family as occurred now in the land. But before we focus on God meant it for good, recognize that Joseph reveals who he is, his brothers were stunned, verses 3 and 4. He says, I am Joseph. His brothers could not answer him. They were dismayed at his presence in verse 3. Simply stated, Joseph's news that he shared with his brothers, I am Joseph, stunned them. So much so they were unable to speak. They're just completely dumbfounded and overwhelmed. I mean, they think Joseph is no more. They think he's dead and gone. They sold him to be a slave. So when he tells them, I'm Joseph, your brother, we can only get a little snapshot of the reaction. Yeah, they've got to be dumbfounded and overwhelmed. Some commentators even suggest they were overwhelmed, unable to speak, for fear that Joseph might kill them. And so the brother was so astounded and fearful that they were not able to answer him. Joseph's being alive altered the family dynamic. That realization, coupled with the fact that Joseph was one of the most powerful officials in the Egyptian empire, made them tremble at the prospect of his vengeful wrath. Well, yeah, I suspect that might have been a possibility maybe going through their mind. But yes, certainly. They were stunned, they were shocked, they were overwhelmed, and just dumbfounded at the fact that Joseph is alive and he's second highest in all the land of Egypt, and now they got to come to him to buy some grain. But whatever the case of them being overwhelmed, Joseph forms in verses 5 through 8 that God sent him to Egypt to preserve life. Notice, if you will, in verses 5 through 8, Three times, not once, not twice, three times, Joseph tells his brothers that God sent him, that God sent him to Egypt. In verse 5, in verse 7, and verse 8, it is written. Which means then that while the brothers hated Joseph, I mean, we know the story. They immensely hated him. They preferred he be dead, or so does the slave. They didn't care what happened to him. They just wanted him gone. But after all that, he tells them it wasn't them after all. It was God 
that divinely orchestrated the entire events to place him in Egypt. The Bible Knowledge Commentary adds, Joseph explained that God has sovereignly brought him to Egypt to prepare for their deliverance from famine. His words form a classic statement on providential control. God sent me ahead of you, he said. It was not you who sent me here, but God, he told them. The certainty that God's will, not man's, is the controlling reality in every event shine through as the basis for reconciliation. No doubt, Joseph had consoled himself many times with this principle of faith. He who is spiritual can perceive the hand of God in every event and therefore is able to forgive those who wrong him. There's a lot of things packed in that particular comment we're going to unfold. But just glance over for just a moment. Maybe one thing sticks out to you maybe more than the other. But there's two things that stick out to me that we take a moment to expand upon. The first is the certainty that God's will, not man's, is the controlling reality in every event. Think about that. We've all been through a lot. We recap some of it briefly, but it's God's will, not man's. It's a controlling reality in every event that happens, in every circumstance. So it begs the question, do we actually realize the sovereignty of God? His power, how he has control of all things? Because mankind often gets it backwards, or they get greatly confused because they sometimes think that they are in control. We think that we are in control of our lives and events. I mean, it's amazing to ponder how many times mankind truly thinks, all of us, that think we are in control of something happening in our lives. However, Proverbs 19.21 reminds us, there are many plans in man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. God, not man, is in control of our lives. And further, nothing can stop the will of God. Nothing can stop God's plans from coming to pass. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purpose, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? God truly is above all. John three thirty one. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Psalms 33, 6. Is there anyone who thinks he can stop the one who breathed out the stars from his breath? Whatever God has planned for any of us will come to pass. As we study scripture, we see prophecy actually turn into history as every prophecy comes to pass and be true. In our text, throughout the story with Joseph and Pharaoh, I mean, Pharaoh had these dreams of cows and the grain, and they came to pass just exactly as expected. There were seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, just exactly as God said it would be as he revealed the, the dreams to Joseph. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream he dreams of a gigantic statue made of four metals. There's the head of gold. There's his chest and arms of silver. The middle section and the thighs are made of bronze and the feet of iron and clay. As 
Nebuchadnezzar receives this dream. He summons Daniel. Daniel interprets the dream for the king and informs him the statue represents four successive kingdoms that shall occur. The first would be great Babylon. Babylon would eventually be overcome by the Medes and the Persians in due time. The Persian Empire eventually is conquered by the Greeks. And then eventually the Greece Empire is overcome, of course, by the Roman Empire. That particular prophecy you find throughout the book of Daniel was so precisely filled that critics actually look at the book of Daniel to see how it passed and say there's no way Daniel could have known precisely and unfolded the situation that he had to write it after the fact. But he didn't. He received a revelation from God, and it just shows and demonstrates that God's ordained plans will come to pass. His will be done. All the forces of evil cannot stop the will of God. As the Lord, Simon, as the Lord told Simon Peter in Matthew 16, 18, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The point is this. God's plan is unchangeable, and nothing and no one in this universe can stop that plan. We have the word. We have the beginning, Genesis, and we have Revelation, the ending. And God has a plan, and it will come to pass, and nothing can stop it. Or as the commentary worded it, the certainty that God's will, not man's, is a controlling event in every reality of life. That's something we should recognize. Because our God is powerful. He is sovereign, and he is mighty. And Joseph hits upon this principle when he tells his brothers that God sent me before you to reserve life. It was not you who sent me, but God. God had a plan in verses 5 through 8. We see it begin to unfold just as he expected it would. But there's a second item to expand upon from that earlier comment. We go back to the comment to be able to look at it again. Rather than reading it at all, look at the last particular st uh, statement or sentence, which says, He who is spiritual can perceive the hand of God in every event and therefore is able to forgive those who wrong him. Let's just recap briefly some things we know happened to Joseph. In the time we have with Joseph, we know that he'd been wronged by several people in his life. First of all, there was his brothers, right? They actually sold him into slavery, despised him, wanted to kill him. We've rehashed that several different times. After the situation with his brothers, we know he went and lived with Potiphar in Potiphar's house for a while. He was in charge of everything for Potiphar except his wife. His wife actually brought some trumped-up charges against Joseph. Potiphar finds out about it, of course. So Potiphar actually places Joseph in prison. There was, in the chapters we skipped, a situation with the chief butler. Joseph correctly interpreted his dream and said, hey, by the way, remind me, remember me when you stand before Pharaoh. And he didn't. He wronged Joseph then as well. And maybe there's even others. So we know that Joseph has been wronged many different times in life, repeatedly, over and over and over and over again. Joseph has been wronged. He has been offended by others. He has greatly been wronged in his life. A life of hardship. A life of adversity. In which he suffered. So as we recognize what's happened to Joseph, the question really becomes this. 
how does our life stack up against his? I mean, all of us have people that offend us, that wrong us somehow, some way. And perhaps your siblings picked on you. Maybe your supervisor dislikes you and constantly ridicules you. Maybe your parents, unfortunately, in life abused you verbally or physically and emotionally. Maybe you're the subject of being made fun of. I mean, numerous scenarios exist for people wrongly. But there's something here also that we should recognize and sometimes we forget. That we often do the same thing to others. So as we recognize and begin to think about the times maybe we're offended, that we're wronged, and maybe how we even do sometimes to others, we should observe the comment once more and recognize how it's really now talking about forgiveness. It says he or she who is spiritual can perceive the hand of God in every event and therefore is able to forgive those who wronged him. Notice the principle here as you boil it down is talking about forgiveness. And remarkably then, as we review the life of Joseph, I mean, yeah, he was an obnoxious teenager who made life difficult for his brothers by sharing that dream and had that coat of many special colors that he just wanted to share with them as well. And he's kind of rubbing their face. But he has grown. And now we see he can forgive the people in his life that directly cause him some hardship. He can forgive the people in life that directly caused him some hardship. Can we do that? Can we actually forgive the people who wronged us? Now, admittedly, life gets hard, really hard. And then we can be really wronged in a situation that makes us really start thinking about it. I mean, put yourself, for example, in the shoes of Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was serving the Lord passionately, proclaiming the good news of Jesus to all. When suddenly he is accused of blasphemy. As a result, he's rushed to a trumped-up trial and charges brought against him, and he's found guilty. But the council then pronouncing his sentence, his sentence for blasphemy, death by stoning. He's dragged from the city and stoned by an angry crowd. But remarkably, as Stephen was receiving that beating and stoning about to die, he prayed. Acts chapter 7, verse 59, said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Verse 60, when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen practiced forgiveness in a moment when he had been wronged. I mean, if anybody had been wronged, it was Stephen's situation. I mean, he's just sharing people the good news of Christ. There's no harm in that. There's no sin against that. And he brought blasphemy against him. But he practiced forgiveness before he died. Stoning by death. Last week, if you were here, you may remember me telling you about an accident that happened a mile or so from the house, my house in Texas. An unfortunate set of circumstances and events that took the life of two precious little girls. There was Chloe, age five, if you remember, and Emery of age seven. 
their mother, Don Marie Adams, was driving home one day with the children in the back of the car. The highway did not have a divided highway. It was a four-lane highway in Highway 49 in Texas, and she actually literally had to come to a stop headed east to turn left. But she had to wait for traffic to clear. So she has her left turn signal on, stopped on the middle of the highway, in the left lane to turn left, and there's two lanes of oncoming traffic. When you remember, I told you behind her came 74-year-old Herbert Parr, who did not see the turning signal, did not see her stop, and immediately slammed the car full speed. A violent crash. Imagine the magnitude of someone coming up on you, stop vehicle, full speed behind you. I mean, the trunk, the back seat is violently rushed forward. And in the back seat, of course, is Chloe and Emery. Five-year-old Chloe, I shared with you, was killed instantly. Emery had to be transported to East Texas Medical Center in Tyler, which is at least an hour and a half away, life flight. And as she arrives at ETMC, I mean, she's also pronounced dead. The, the, the mother, Don Marie, was injured. Her life was spared, but she's in a wheelchair after she recovered. Herbert Parr, the driver of the truck, was uninjured. Those things I shared with you last week, recapping a lot of the details again this week. But I didn't actually finish the story. To finish the story, i got to tell you that you must know that Don Marie Adams and her husband, had been led by God to start a home church. For whatever reason, life events already put her husband in a wheelchair, and now she's in a wheelchair as well. And they've lost two children. But in the fact that they were Christians, believers, followers, when everything had cleared it, I mean, the situation had unfolded days later, maybe even a week or so later, we found that Don Marie went back to Herbert Park, the man responsible for taking her children, putting her in a wheelchair, and she forgave him. She forgave the man responsible for the death of her two children and for her being paralyzed. Again, the question is, can we do that? Can we forgive people who have greatly wronged us? I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do? I mean, aren't we supposed to forgive others who have been wronged? I mean, Don Marie Adams lived by the principle of forgiveness. It says he who is spiritual can perceive the hand of God somehow, some way, in every being, and therefore is able to forgive those who wronged him. I mean, no, I don't talk to her a lot. I don't really know her that well, but and I don't know if she ever understood why the hand of God did not spare her children. But she's able to practice spirituality, her faith, and forgive. But as we think about this even further, when you truly ponder the idea of being wronged in life, we have to consider our Lord. I mean, has there ever been anyone more wronged against or offended than Jesus? I mean, he was innocent. 
He was blameless, without blemish, perfect in every possible way. And ultimately, he forgave all those who accused him, who beat him, who mocked him. As should we. I mean, the question really becomes, when we start thinking about this, why should we forgive as Joseph had apparently forgiven his brothers? Why should we forgive, apparently, as Stephen had forgiven his accusers that stoned him? Why should we forgive like, like Dom Marie Adams did Herbert Parr? Or why, as Jesus, who sets really an example for us, why this principle of forgiveness? Because we're supposed to. If, and if we do not forgive, then we are not forgiven. Matthew 6.15 But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Joseph forgave the brothers of their offenses toward him. It demonstrated his growth. It demonstrated his spirituality. It demonstrated his faith, his dependence on God knowing that God was leading him every step in life through the good and the bad, which not only allowed him at this particular moment in chapter 45 to forgive his brothers, but also to say at the end of Genesis in chapter 50, verse 20, that you intended it for harm, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We don't get the chance to cover the entire story of Joseph. It's worthy to go ahead and read all the 13 chapters related to Joseph. In chapter 37 all the way through chapter 50. As we hear what portion we do get to Joseph, maybe we're left wondering, well, how does all this then affect me personally? Well, here's how it ends. You may not be aware of God's plan in your life. You may not even be aware of God directing your path and keeping you close. You could possibly be living life thinking that your life is now littered with one disaster or crisis after another. And that people are constantly taking advantage of you. That you're a recipient of constant offenses. Always being wrong somehow, some way. But here's the thing. Don't doubt that God is with you. Don't ever doubt that God is with you through the good and through the bad. And he can use your life, your situation, your events, your circumstance for not only your good, your spiritual growth, but also for the good of others. God meant it for good. Life is not always what we expect it to be. and certainly not always what we planned it to be. But we got to recognize that God is in control. And his will will be done. It is our responsibility to recognize his sovereignty, his power, his might, and just accept his will. Father, Lord, we thank you for the series we had this summer of how it's given us many opportunities to expand upon some principles to maybe live by and to maybe, well, maybe to reapply in our lives. Lord, we live busy lives, and sometimes we just need these kind of reminders to how we should live. And how we do live, Lord, and how we're going to have people offend us and wrong us, and ultimately, how we must forgive. 
So, Lord, today I pray for all of us and that whatever situation we find ourselves in today, that we would extend forgiveness. Forgive those, Lord, today who have maybe done something bad to us or to put us in a circumstance or event or for things that's unfolding in our lives, Lord, that we still don't understand. But forgive us, Lord, for even questioning you for why these things happen. I pray for all of us together today, Lord, to extend the forgiveness to individuals in life who have wronged us. We thank you for this series. We thank you for what we've learned. And Lord, we always take a moment to thank you for the very best blessing you could ever give us in life, your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.